This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. It may be hard to grasp, but this week will mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But as much as this battle is being fought with cutting-edge drones and cyber warfare in some areas, in others, we see areas inhabited with scenes it wouldn't be out of place decades ago. It's a battle where we see Cold War Soviet-era machinery rolling back into the battlefield. We see armoured spearheads reminiscent of the battles of World War II. And even in some places, like Bakhmut, trenches that wouldn't seem amiss on the battlefields of World War I. It seems like another European trope, but an old Churchill quote is reappearing to laugh at us from the pages of history. The quote in question being that European generals are always prepared to fight the last war. As anyone who follows history will tell you, the French entered World War I with bright uniforms, drummers and set formations, reminiscent of the glory days in the Napoleonic era, and were then subsequently torn apart by the modern artillery. They entered the Second World War pinning their hopes on the Maginot Line, a thick network of bunkers, barriers and trenches designed to defend a static First World War-style battle. But when the Second World War kicked off and push came to shove, the Germans simply ran around it. Fast forward again, and the French go into the Cold War with huge standing armies, tanks and nuclear weapons, ready to fight large armoured formations on the plains of Europe, but instead ended up fighting proxies in Vietnam. Even after the Cold War, where Europe held on to most of their tanks and heavy aircraft, it turned out that insurgency fighting would become the name of the game. Theatres where the cutting edge of fighter jet technology has little use against an insurgent with an AK-47. So many of the European generals doubled down, and bought a bunch of equipment to craft themselves into the best insurgency fighters out there. But then 2022 came around, and Russia's armoured columns roared back into Ukraine, and in a matter of hours, those lightly armoured French APCs designed to be able to easily navigate through the streets of Bamako went from the perfect fighting unit to exactly the wrong piece of equipment for a battlefield now congested with Russian tanks, artillery bombardments, and large infantry formations. And once again, Europe was caught prepared to fight the wrong war. But that was a year ago, and since February, Europe seems to have somewhat woken up, and defense leaders from across the continent are now rushing to rebuild the armored forces they've been neglecting for three decades, and crank up the artillery shell plants that have been at minimal capacity for years. But the European defense industry is complicated, with huge industries and monumental supply chains to a point where the tanks boasted about today in press conferences may not hit the European battlefields for another 5-10 to 10 years. And whilst yes, I am the first to agree that new tanks are exactly what you would need to fight a war against massed Russian armoured columns going toe-to-toe in the farmlands of eastern Ukraine, they're also the exact opposite of what European security partners would need to neutralise growing insurgencies in Africa, or regain control over civil wars emerging in the Balkans, or even fend off a Chinese invasion in the narrow mountain passes of Taiwan. Is this rearmament Europe finally waking up to the threat living on their eastern flank? Or is it yet another instalment of European nations once again gearing up for the wrong war? Well, that is the question we're going to be asking today. And to help us figure out why defence procurements have become such an entanglement over the years, and what all of these promises of a rearmed Europe might actually amount to in Ukraine, we turn to our first guest. Part 1 a continental landmine. 
I mean, I think before Ukraine, there was evidence that a number of countries, they were sort of ticking up their defense spending. The UK had announced on the back of its integrated review that it was going to increase its defense spending a little bit. Some of the the neighboring countries we saw over recent years, you know, in the Nordics, uh, in Central Europe, that uh, they were sort of looking again at their defense spending and increasing it. But the Ukraine war really has moved things forward quite dramatically, and particularly in some countries. Neil Melvin is the Director of International Security Studies at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, with his current research focusing on the emerging international security dynamics in key regions around the world, but most notably Europe and Eurasia. Prior to joining RUSI, Neil was the Director of the Armed Conflict and Conflict Management Program, and then Director of Research at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. He's also held senior advisory positions in the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Energy Charter, the European Union, and has been a consultant for the United Nations. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program today. The famous uh, announcement in Germany about the Zeitenwende, the big turn in German strategic thinking, uh, was accompanied by a commitment of 100 billion euros for defense. Uh, France has increased or announced it's going to increase up to 2030 its defense spending you know, very significantly from what it's been before to 40% from its current level. Uh, in Poland, there's ambitions to take their defense spending as high as 4%. I think the UK is revisiting its defense spending after the Ukraine war, and we've got a refresh of the integrated review, which is going to be accompanied by a defense command paper, which is the spending part. That probably is going to be a bit more. So I think, I mean, across much of Europe now, we do see a big uptick, which is going to projected to go over, over several years because of the, the life cycle of, of, of the, um, the armaments that's involved in this. And this really is looks like a rearmament of Europe now. Military spending is far more difficult to measure than just X country spent X dollars for a wide myriad of reasons. And how much bang for their buck each country gets from their spending also dramatically differs from country to country. As an example, Russia on paper spends less than the UK does on their military spending, but fields a much larger army than the British ever could. And there's another where Germany actually spends more on the defense than France, and yet France maintains overseas territories, fights counterinsurgencies on multiple continents, and even possesses nuclear weapons. So why is there such variation between what a country spends on defense and what they actually get for that money? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of thinking about this over the years, and certainly the purchasing power of your currency is very significant. So, I mean, the Russians, their budgets always look smaller, but of course, they're, they're basically buying a lot of their kit domestically. It's much cheaper on the whole, and so actually the costs of buying it are generally much, much smaller. There's also, I think, a very different experience of procurement. People, I think, are looking at France at the moment, which has been pretty successful in actually buying a generation of land warfare equipment, tanks, armoured vehicles, artillery, and so on, in an integrated and quite effective way, whereas the UK seems to have made a bit of a mess of it. The army's had quite a bit of money over recent years, but has messed up a lot of these purchases. Germany, again, announced they're going to spend $100 billion, but the more people are looking at this... I think the more worried they are that this is really not going to be enough and much of the problem is may not even be the money but actually the whole system of procurement and organization of contracts and, and indeed just the, the ability to kind of use these weapons the broad picture is spending is up that's not necessarily going to translate into a massive increase of capacities evenly across all these countries i think we, we may see quite a variegated picture emerging well, let's dive into an example of just how fraught and complicated defense procurement can be. 
And for this, we use Germany, as Germany is notorious for the difficulty in arms procurements because of everything from endless committees to decide what works to companies suing each other during the tender process. So can you take us through the German example of just how complicated defense procurement can be? Well, it's been over a year now since the, the announcement of the 100 billion. A lot of people are already starting to say, I think analysts, you know, what's, what's happening? Germany announced a couple of things. It's going to buy the American F-35. But beyond that, uh, it's not really clear. And a lot of the issues that have certainly come out of the Ukraine war is while people may want to buy fancy new systems, the biggest gap in Europe is on readiness and supplies. So it's actually in the more humdrum areas of investment about building up ammunition stocks, having actually the troops that you have got fully sort of capable of moving quickly and effectively. And so Germany is perhaps in one of the worst situations of all the European countries. So it's not even a question of them buying a whole new generation of tanks or so. I think a lot of this money is probably going to go into refurbishing accommodation, making sure that their vehicles can actually work when they turn them on, having enough ammunition, having the, the transporters to move the stuff around. So all of this background investment, which has really been starved over the last two decades in Germany, that probably is going to have to be the first priority. And then we get to the whole question which the war has thrown up about how Germany is approaching its, its defence exports and its control of defence exports, which has raised, I think, a trust issue amongst some of its allies about whether they can really buy German equipment when they're not actually able then to use that or to donate it in this case to Ukraine in the way that they would like to. Whilst Europe seems to be talking about defense purchases once again, where they're purchasing from does raise some eyebrows, as Germany is opting to buy American planes and Poland's opting to buy South Korean tanks, rather than looking toward their own defense industries. So why is Europe going abroad to buy the defense equipment rather than building up their own defense capabilities, which would make it much easier to scale up during a future period of war. Defence procurement is never simply about getting the cheapest and the best, although this is, I think, what the thrust has been for European integration. There's been an idea, really as part of the European dream, I suppose, that Europeans should build up their own defence industry and basically buy from each other. But what we see around the Ukraine war is, is in fact, that's very rarely going to be what drives these decisions. So one thing that has come up quite quickly around the war is that we need weapons fast, and South Korea is able to actually deliver these systems in large numbers relatively quickly. And so that's one of the reasons why countries are pivoting to buying from uh, South Korea. And uh, it looks like that South Korea may well then set up production inside uh, the European market, particularly around the, the deal it's got with Poland, where Poland is buying up to a thousand South Korean K2 tanks and, and hundreds of South Korean artillery, the K9. And that becomes a bridgehead then for selling that to other countries who want to integrate with Poland, probably. And that brings in the second factor I think has come up on the war, which is the element of trust, is that you tend to buy weapons as part of building relationships. And what, what has happened with Germany's hesitancy to export uh, its own tanks and to allow others who bought its tanks to sell them on is that there's a concern about being tied to German political decision making around armaments. So countries are looking beyond Germany now. So we may actually see uh, that the future generation of uh, European tanks increasingly coming from outside Europe. Thirdly is the aspect of keeping the United States relationship strong. So many countries are buying 
from the US just to reconfirm that relationship. And again, it may not be you get the best weapon system, although you know, the US tends to have many of the best, but not always. So countries are buying uh, weapons from the US to cement that tie. I mean, I think the, the German F-35 decision will clearly see that sometimes when uh, Sweden, even before it committed to joining NATO, was buying from the US, I think, to try and lock them in. And then we see countries are often looking to their neighbours, again, to confirm their relationships. So there's been a general uptick in spending. The European Defence Agency has been promoting the idea that there should be joint procurement. And there is an increase in joint procurement, but it's not really at scale. It's not across the EU in large collectives. It's often neighbours, you know, the Czechs and the Slovaks doing things together. And the last element, I think, which is quite a new one, is this that the war has thrown up the interlinkage between the Indo-Pacific and uh, the European security theatre. So we're seeing a set of relationships which now include military industrial ties bridging across the two regions. So we have perhaps most notably the the UK, Italy, Japan fighter deal. We have, of course, the, the AUKUS, the strategic alliance between the United States, Australia and the UK. We see the South Korea tie up coming in, which is mostly about Poland, but other countries, Norway is, is looking at buying South Korean. It's quite a lot of artillery already in Europe is being bought from South Korea. I think the UK will probably look to fill its artillery gap by buying again the K-9 from South Korea in the next couple of years. So all of that suggests that the concept of integrated European defence purchasing system has really been, to some degree, exploded by the war. Another almost uniquely European problem is the leftovers from the Cold War. You see, when the USSR and the Warsaw Pact collapsed, countries like Poland, East Germany, Romania, Bulgaria, Czechia, Slovakia, etc., etc., we're all left with these huge stockpiles of Russian equipment, mostly all designed for large-scale mobilizations and a march westward. And back then, during the transition period, with their economies wrecked, many of them prioritized keeping the power on in the country rather than ditching all their old T-72s. And that same conversation has been going on and on and on. And since then, many of these countries look at their tanks and wonder if it's worth spending the huge amounts of money to shelve these tanks and upgrade to expensive NATO-style ones. And while some in Europe like Germany have made that call, others have simply chosen to pay the lesser amount to just maintain their existing stockpiles. In fact, this situation is why Europe and even EU countries are still producing Soviet-style 152mm artillery shells and knock off Russian parts in quite large quantities. But as weird as it sounds, it was an absolute godsend for Ukraine, as Ukraine was one of those nations who were still using majority Soviet-style equipment. So when the February offensive kicked off, Europe was able to very quickly flood Ukraine with their stockpiles of either leftovers from the 90s or the reproduced Russian-caliber shells that were perfect for the Ukrainian guns. So with a lot of Europe's Warsaw Pact stockpiles now donated to Ukraine, and more and more countries within Europe taking the plunge to overhaul and refit their armies to NATO standard, do you think the days of Soviet-style armament producers in Europe are numbered? We've now seen really a transition away from the Soviet stuff. And I mean, the Ukrainians are also pivoting away from Soviet stocks to some degree as, as they move on to NATO standards and looking ahead, that's going to be the way forward. So I think there's not really much point anymore. I mean, even if it, there was a, a, a need to supply countries like Georgia with those kind of things, it'd be relatively small amounts. I mean, Ukraine has been a, an enormous drain on, on all of that stuff. But I think we've really passed that point now. So the challenge really, I think, is now to move Ukraine onto NATO standard equipment completely. That's not going to happen in the immediate years. But 
part of the long-term assuring Ukraine's defense and security will be building its armed forces in a way that it can protect itself from future Russian aggression. And that's going to be done on NATO standard stuff. Although again, it may be that we see that it's it's NATO standard, but not in Europe. It's not impossible that the Ukrainians, once they start to look at future procurement, given the fact that Poland is going to buy uh, it's a thousand tanks from South Korea it might make more sense to actually buy also this, the same kind of tanks so they can integrate together rather than buying a Leopard 2, which is going to have different spare parts and have required different levels of training and support. So we're going to get, a, I think, a different picture emerging than the idea of a single integrated European defence market that perhaps even two years ago, there was a, there was a strong feeling that moment had come. But NATO-style equipment is usually quite expensive. And for a poorer nation like Bulgaria, wouldn't they be better off buying a thousand Russian AK-74s or AK-12s rather than just a hundred US M4 rifles for the same price? After all, the Bulgarian army is more designed to keep peace within the country than launch large-scale offensives in any direction. I mean, the most important thing is interoperability. So uh, if the equipment is interoperable with, with NATO, then of course that would make sense. And we've seen that some of the difficulties when you don't have that, even supplying Ukraine, where Ukraine is now going to be you know, potentially supporting uh, three different Western tank systems, all with different spare parts, some with different shells, different uh, loaders for moving these things. So, I mean, uh, as long as, as, long as the, you can ensure interoperability is the fundamental principle, then that's the starting point. Beyond that, of course, it is going to depend on countries' ability to spend. I think for countries like Bulgaria and Romania, which are really on the front line now, this is the moment where, particularly on, on Bulgaria's case, which is, I mean, they've avoided rearming since the end of the Soviet Union. They've been running really Soviet-era equipment well beyond the life it perhaps it should have been in, in the fighter and land warfare, but even on their naval capabilities. So rather than buying, at this point, continuing to buy from Russia, which how politically would that work? Uh, This is the moment for all these countries, I think, to to now start to look for Western equipment. Most of the countries looking to undertake that overhaul and upgrade are spending the vast majority of money resupplying their army and ground defences, meaning that as part of this upgrade, Europe's navies are largely being left behind. Is there a worry in the defence community that whilst, yes, Europe building up their ground forces will allow them to have a large amount of battle tanks, but down the line they won't have a decent enough navy to find battles in the Arctic or even the Pacific? Yeah, I mean, this is a big discussion, I think, and we'll see this going up to Vilnius, the NATO summit, as to what is going to be the commitments that the NATO states are going to make. There's there's going to be a discussion about defence spending. Are we going to try and go beyond 2% as the goal? But part of that is then the question of how much is going to go into land warfare. I mean, some countries who are neighbouring Ukraine clearly feel very threatened and they put a lot into that. Uh, The UK, which has hollowed out its uh, land warfare, I think there's a lot of discussion now about trying to reconstitute that. But you do wonder whether actually having a few hundred UK tanks that could go all the way across Europe to the eastern flank, really be rather a, a small contribution in the context of, of the vast forces that are being built up there, where the resources might be better spent in other areas. And for the UK, that would be probably on the flanks, northern flank, but also Black Sea, East Mediterranean, which is essentially a maritime and air contribution. If you look ahead also, there is a question about what sort of threat is Russia going to really be to NATO, because it's being pretty degraded in, in many respects, and we'll see what happens now now in the spring campaign where 
there's going to be some pretty intense fighting going on in, in Ukraine. The Russians are going to lose a lot more equipment. This is going to take a while to reconstitute themselves. So actually, even on the land warfare side, in the next five to 10 years, the Russians may be relatively weak. So their main threat actually to NATO may indeed be on this maritime flanks where their Navy and their Air Force has been relatively immune so far from damage from the Ukraine war. And so those forces remain largely intact. And I would estimate that the Russians will probably rely more on those to use as, as a way to threaten NATO than they will do by some idea of armoured forces punching through Ukraine and then punching through the eastern flank, because that's going to be a really, I think, a task that, that was going to be far beyond the Russians. The war in Ukraine has also brought up a lot of questions about quantity versus quality. And to explain what I mean by this, whilst, yes, the US Reaper drones are probably one of the best on the market at the moment, they also come with a $16 million price tag on them. And for that price, you could buy three to four Turkish Bayraktar TB2 drones, which when engaging with an enemy at this distance, pretty much do the same thing. And nations might feel that it's not as much of a risk to put a TB2 out as losing one won't lose $60 million. And even continuing with that argument a bit further, the items we see most requested by the Ukrainian soldiers are these refitted $500 hobby drones, which are capable of carrying a grenade over to the enemy trench. It would be quite hard to argue that Ukraine would be better off buying one Reaper drone as opposed to 32,000 of these hobby drones. And so for them, quantity is trumping quality. But now looking back at Western Europe, are they also having this same debate within their defense forces? That maybe a large amount of medium good equipment might be better off than a small amount of good equipment. Yeah, I think this is one of the conundrums that comes out of the Ukraine war is that drones and high-end tech, it's shown its value. I mean, there's no doubt about it that it's crucial. But at the same time, what we've seen is there's very high attrition in this war. So if you have a great, you know, really expensive system, that's great. It's going to make a big impact, but it's not going to last very long. So, I mean, you're going to, you're going to run out of these things very fast. And so actually having... There's going to have to be some kind of balance, I suspect, in which, again, you're going to have to spend more money in general to extend your capabilities, but you're going to have to look at layering these because the attrition rate on drones is literally in hours often, particularly on the cheaper ones, certainly in days on the most expensive ones. And no matter how well protected you are in the warfare that we've seen in Ukraine, you cannot stop that attrition happening. You can perhaps slow it down a little bit, but it's it's still going to happen. And, and that's true across all these spectrums. So we've even seen that around armor, where there was a discussion, you know, a feeling a couple of years ago that the era of the tank was over. And some countries, such as Netherlands, Norway, have sort of given up on the idea of having tanks before Ukraine. The UK was uh, has cut down the number of tanks it's going to support to a very low number. Now everyone thinks, uh, well, actually, tanks have been shown to be really important in, in this war along, alongside artillery. But again, it's uh, they've been important, but the attrition has also been extremely high. So if you're going to be in the tank business, it's not just a question of having a few. You're going to need a lot because they are you are going to lose them. So there's probably no way around this that if you want to really have a force that is capable of fighting and fighting on a sustained basis, there's going to have to be a big investment. You can't simply just choose one system or another. You're going to have to invest in a lot of different systems and defense spending is going to have to go up to meet that. With that in mind, there's another strange aspect of the European defense industry. With any other industry, the Europeans were starting to take advantage of economies of scale and fracturing the supply chains. The Europeans would pick one tank, one plane, one APC, one rifle, and make enough of that unit to supply all of Europe's armies. 
taking advantage of economies of scale and bringing the cost per unit price right down. And even as a bonus, it would also make supplying spare parts and repairs even easier and bring the cost of that right down as well. And on top of that, you'd think the Europeans would fracture their supply chains, building the labor-intensive parts of the tanks, like the armor or the treads, in countries with cheap labor like Romania and Poland, and then building the technical computing parts in nations like Germany or France, which is the exact process the European auto industry does. But Europe doesn't do that when it comes to the defense industries. Instead, they have a French industry, a British industry, a German industry, an Italian industry, a Polish industry, etc., etc. So why doesn't Europe undertake what every Economics 101 textbook would tell them to do? I mean, that goes, I think, to the heart of the whole way that actually defence industry works, because often behind the rhetoric of European defence industry are very clear national interests. So when France talks about European industry, defence industry, they normally mean the French defence industry. And so uh, there's a strong desire to actually steer European defence spending into French companies. And so we'll, we'll see this France, which has been leading on the idea of strategic autonomy for Europe and strengthening European defence. It's now announced this huge amount of money it's going to spend. Well, how is it going to spend that? Is it going to buy weapon systems from the UK companies, from Swedish companies, from Czech companies, and actually drive a European integration? And it's the same with the 100 billion that the Germans have got. Is that going to be spent across Europe? My guess is probably not. Because, in fact, again, one of the lessons that comes out of the Ukraine war is that the states remain the key sovereign actors in Europe and countries still think primarily in terms of national defence, even if they're cooperating with others through NATO, they retain the idea of, of national defence and they want to make sure that there are sovereign value chains inside the country that they can deliver on that. And so much of the defence discussions, I think, are going to remain very national because of that. And we see that even in the, in the efforts to try and do these high symbolic joint procurements. The French and the Germans have been leading on this. They have some, some of these big projects, the, the future European fighter jet, the future European tank. Both of these projects are completely now mired in national caveats about what actually each country needs and wants, uh, which is may well actually kill both these projects in the future will see. I mean, certainly the, the European tank idea uh, is struggling, and this is why I think there's a there's a real risk for the Europeans that actually countries in Asia, the South Koreans, may well sweep in and actually take much of the European tank market for themselves because they have this product ready to go, and it doesn't actually require this cooperation. We've got a, a similar dilemma now on the European fighter, in which there is a counter project: the, the UK, Italy, Japan. Uh, and Sweden probably coming into that too. So again, it's a functional network that's built around delivering a product. It's not necessarily about European integration and promoting the European defense industry per se. It's about all those countries developing their national defense industries, but in cooperation. So this is the reality that's coming out of the war is that there's a rearmament happening, but it's very nationally based and all cooperation is really being determined by those national priorities fundamentally rather than some idea of a European collective interest. I think we remain as far from that dream as ever in some respects. Britain, France and Germany were all largely caught off guard when the Russians crossed the border again back in February. Britain had been collecting her tank and artillery forces for years. France was in a period of transition, 
and trying to convince other armies in Europe to hold off on their repairs or refits and instead buy French products. Germany, though, was probably in the worst position of them all. In those early days of the war in Ukraine, people laughed when all Germany sent to Ukraine was a truck worth of helmets, but for Germany, that's kind of all they had to give. You see, after decades of hesitancy to rearm the country, as well as a uniquely German problem with the bureaucracy, meant endless delays in defense procurement. And to take you through an example, when Berlin puts out the request for companies to build the new German artillery system, they'll have 10 different companies apply to build it. But when Germany inevitably picks one over the other nine, due to the German system, those nine companies can sue the winner of the contract, and German procurement grinds to a halt until all of those lawsuits are settled. It's this sort of years of peacetime bureaucracy that now make it difficult for Germany to rearm quickly in the time of war. But all of that was pre-Ukraine. So what are the Germans, as well as the French and the British, going to do to untangle the web of problems rampant throughout the defense industries? Can they reverse the decades of peacetime sluggishness and get the new generations of tanks to the field in time to help Ukraine? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. A Customized Calamity I think you have to connect spending with capabilities. And I like to use the comparison between the United Kingdom, the UK military, and the Italian military for me is one of the really useful ways of thinking about this. So on paper, the UK military is a substantially larger budget than the Italian military. And on paper, the British Army, Navy, and Air Force have you know, substantial capabilities. The UK has a nuclear deterrent. But in practice, a lot of that spending is not as effective as on paper it claims to be. And so, uh, you know, you can argue about there have been sort of huge blunders made in terms of UK defense spending on projects like Ajax, which is a infantry fighting vehicle, which the Spanish just bought off the shelf. And the British just demanded a thousand, something like a thousand different alterations to it, which means it doesn't work, whereas the Spanish model does. Or you could look at uh, the, you know, so gradual erosion and collapse of British military bases because they haven't invested in them properly. The gradual shrinkage of basically the shrinkage of the British army to 79,000 men. So that the Britain hasn't had this few soldiers since in the army and land forces since the mid 18th century, probably since the 1740s. Alex Clarkson. He's a senior lecturer in German, European, and International Studies at King's College in London, with his primary research focusing on the European Union's military spending patterns, cross-border relations, and defensive doctrines. He's also authored a number of great works on the subject, including The Political Economy of Border Regimes and The EU's Stealthy Hegemony and Ambiguous Neighbors. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. So what you were looking at here is, on the other hand, an Italian military, which has a lot of weaknesses, but where they invest is focused on two or three different priorities. And those priorities all are rotate around the Mediterranean. So the Italians have a highly effective navy. They're probably one of the few European countries that have expanded their navy. They have substantial weaknesses in their land forces, but all those parts of the army that they need to control the Mediterranean are highly effective. Uh, they have an air force that's designed for those tasks, which is to the frustration, for example, of the Americans or the East Europeans, because they would like the Italians to make more of a contribution to the East, which the Italians struggle to. So the point is to think not just in terms of spending, but what it's, the money is spent on and how effectively it's spent. And there you have a substantial differences between different European militaries. I mean, the Italian military, to take that example again, is substantially stronger than the German military, even though the German military spends a lot more because the Italians have a clear 
strategic doctrine in terms of where their strategic center of gravity is. The Italians, if you read their defense papers, are entirely focused on the Mediterranean. They, they're not that interested in the world beyond the Mediterranean in military terms. So they get, in that sense, more bang for their buck. A good example of that as well as in Eastern Europe is Poland. And the Polish, you know, they have a different orientation. They're a land power. They have a clear sense of a threat from Russia in the east. And they focus the great bulk of their investment on artillery, on tanks, multi-launch rocket systems, and the infantry forces around that to protect, shield that, and take advantage of that. The Poles, again, have are building uh, and very rapidly building a highly effective military, not because their budget is huge, but because they use their budget well. And so I think when we look at the different levels of spending in the EU or among the EU states or European NATO states, if you include the Britain, it's not just about the headline budget figure. You raise an interesting concept with the army's design for their own nation's needs. We see this with the British army being mostly designed as a tip-of-the-spear expeditionary force, the French army being designed to fight in the Sahel and defend its own territories. We see with the Italians designing their army around defending the Mediterranean. But what about the Germans? What is the Bundeswehr designed to do? There's the German military doctrine in theory, and there's German military policy in practice. So the German military has, since the Cold War, been relatively disorientated in terms of strategy, but also reflecting wider blunders or a lack of kind of a military focus in, in, in German, German military strategy. We have to think about this historically, and sometimes we sort of throw accusations at politicians of the past without thinking through the particular historical context they were operating in. In the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, there was a general belief, at least within the German political and military elite, that Russia had ceased to be a threat to Europe. But the main raison d'etre of the German military has been as a land power, at least since 1945 in terms of the West German military, to help NATO ward off a Soviet or Russian threat. So when the Cold War comes to an end and the German political elite genuinely believes that, you know, let's put it this way, this time is it's different and history really is over, the German military became a target of cuts. On the other hand, because of the wars in the Balkans, the wars in Yugoslavia, there still was a pressure to maintain a substantial enough military force to act in a kind of a policeman, or I prefer to call it a gendarmerie role. You know, there's, there's a particular form of national policing that has a military dimension. It's very much in the kind of European tradition. And so what you had is on paper, the German Bundeswehr, the German military was still claimed to act as a key hinge and leadership actor in the European military sphere. Whereas in practice, it became a target of cuts. It became particularly during the Eurozone crisis. So particularly during the period between 2009 and 2015, when the entire EU system and the Eurozone system, the currency crisis forced all European countries to cut. Although interestingly, the Italians never really cut their navy. It was interesting where they put their priorities. The Bundeswehr became a target for cuts. There was an attempted reform in 2010. And with any kind of reform process that tries to reform things on the cheap, it made things much worse. There was lack of maintenance. There was lack of strategic focus. And in the end, what you had was not really a strategy. You had reactive policies. So, for example, when there was the war in Afghanistan, uh, when Germany decided to oppose the invasion of, the Iraq, of Iraq, the German government, to keep the Bush administration, W. Bush administration, happy, promised to commit German troops to operations in Afghanistan. But they were under-resourced, not properly trained. But that stretched the German military that was already suffering from cuts. Similarly, uh, in the last 10 years, the German government repeatedly made commitments to the French to send their troops to be involved in the Sahel and in the operations like Barkhane. But again, there was no reorientation of strategic doctrine, no shifting of spending, no buying of new equipment for that specific task. It was simply a reactive measure to see, keep the French happy in those kinds of circumstances. 
Many analysts will point to the fact that Europe managed to blunt the Russian offensive in Ukraine by throwing all of the Warsaw Pact gear and munitions they had sitting around in storage bunkers at the Ukrainians in those first few weeks, giving them enough anti-tank weapons and artillery to prevent the Russians from taking some of these major cities in Ukraine. But by now, the Europeans have burnt through most of the Warsaw Pact gear that was sitting in the bunkers. So if in the future the Russians were to launch an invasion of Georgia or Moldova or there was another outbreak of conflict within the Balkans, is there a supply of Warsaw Pact gear left that the Europeans could quickly flood the defenders like they did for Ukraine? Should Europe reproduce its Warsaw Pact supplies, or is that type of equipment now just a relic of the past? I think that's the biggest long-term weakness. And I think that's something that is happening. It's changing very rapidly. And again, the centers of power for that within the EU in particular are in places that aren't necessarily on the main focus of analysts. I mean, a lot of wider media debate you know, focuses on the European military industries, you know, arms industries or the big militaries. They tend to, of course, focus on France, UK, Germany, maybe Italy. But if we're looking at the kind of military industrial facilities that for basic shell production, for example, most of those are centered in Romania, uh, not just for Warsaw Pact kind of arms, but what they're doing very rapidly is converting, converting their factories to produce NATO standard armaments and munitions. There was a very slow program there. It's now rapidly accelerating. Another big center of arms production is Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland. So actually what's happening is, is in terms of military power and in terms of people who help call the shots at the big European table, suddenly the, whereas during the Eurozone crisis, the, the crisis of Europe's currency or the migration crisis, the Central Euro Eastern Europeans were a little bit peripheral to EU policymaking, suddenly both within EU or the whole collection of European states within NATO, suddenly the Central and Eastern European states are central actors. They're helping to secure both NATO as well as the basic foundations of the EU's wider system. So I think in terms of arms production, there's sort of two things happening. I think what the EU states and the other European states that are also in NATO have realized is the old days of artisanal style arms production of maybe building one César French artillery system every three months or four months. That's no longer possible. The European states, as the United States will have to, as Russia is trying to, as China and India are doing, are going to have to recalibrate their supply chains, recalibrate their manufacturing and production facilities, recalibrate the structures that they have towards industrial forms of in military mass production. And in the process, you know, of course, the French arms industry and the German-Italian arms industry, the Italian arms industry, again, is substantial on a naval level. And the British arms industry matter. But the factories for that that can produce Produce for stuff for you fast and cheap. They're in Eastern Europe. And that also means that that also reshapes the power balance within the European Union, as well as how the, these different states of the European Union relate to the UK. And that has very interesting implications for what influence, for example, future Polish governments have in the European Commission, if defense becomes more of a European EU level thing, the role the Romanians have in determining EU foreign policy and security strategy. Suddenly they really matter. Brussels can't ignore what Bucharest, Bucharest isn't, can, is no longer just a state that is asked to nod and sign what the, the commission wants, EU commission wants. Brussels, Romania now has leverage and can say, look, we're really important. We also need this stuff done for us but within the EU system. So that has all kinds of very interesting implications, not just for the defense field, but also how the EU itself works. So if we were to take a look at the defense shopping cards of the EU members and compare that to, let's say, what the US is buying at the moment, what do you think would be the major differences? This is, again, a, a tension between, say, British or French ambitions and the rest of the EU. There is a consensus if you go outside of Paris and London that the Europeans, before they develop any global ambitions in the Indo-Pacific, in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific region, first we need to be able to do the basics. 
which is secure the Euro-Atlantic and Euro-Mediterranean areas, right? And that includes Ukraine. And also that opens up all kinds of interesting questions about after this war, how does Ukraine become integrated in these structures too, especially becomes an EU member state. The great strategic advantage the United States has is it doesn't really have to worry about securing its own home waters. So the Americans can project power globally without really worrying about their home area. The Europeans operate in a fundamentally different geopolitical environment. They have Russia to the east. You know, there's still the Maghreb, Tunisia, Morocco, Libya is, 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 is a huge mess to the south. Egypt, if Egypt collapses, that's an absolute nightmare. It's a country of 100 million people and its economy is about to fall over the edge of the cliff. Turkey has just gone through an earthquake, has a hostile government, but also somehow tied to the EU through NATO membership and, and, and customs. You have Ukraine, managing Russia. Then you have the Sahel region to the south of North Africa, sort of central and West Africa. This is, these are endless numbers of security tasks. So I think the European horizon is really its neighborhood. How do we find a way of securing our neighborhood as Europeans without constantly having to ask for American help? And in a sense, that's also healthier for U European relations with the United States. I mean, there's a lot of U.S. resentment that's constantly having to come and dig the Europeans out of trouble and help them out. It would be a healthier relationship between Europe and the United States if the Europeans could take care of more of their own security needs. And of course, in partnership with the United States, I think that's the only way that works. American military spending and military horizons are truly global. Whereas even if the EU becomes a, which it already largely is, global economic power, in security terms, it can only really be a regional actor, but partly because the US has the advantage of having locked down complete security control of its region, whereas the EU is surrounded by all kinds of sources of crises that the Americans don't really have to handle or can handle at a distance. Most of these defense shifts were kicked off by the invasion of Ukraine, but if the war in Ukraine quiets down or even solidifies into a sort of 2016 Donbass scenario, where the fighting is pretty minimal all along the front, how does Europe's attitude toward defense change? With that a hot war happening in Ukraine, will Europe revert back to their 2021 defense plans? Or is this revitalized importance on defense something that's here to stay in Europe, regardless of the outcome of the war in Ukraine? This reorientation to heavy equipment, I think this is a generational shock, and all this spending is going to flow through. On the other hand, the Ukrainians have so battered the Russian military, and so battered a substantial part of Vladimir Putin's repressive capacity, that there isn't, there's a distinct possibility that Russia over time enters into civil war or civil conflict, right? So I think even if Europe and Ukraine really win, like EU and U NATO, UK and Ukraine really win, like Russia really loses badly, I still think the Europeans will be stuck with huge security problems related to Russia and the greater Eurasian area if Russia collapses. And so I think that spending is, is permanent, and I think that level of security militarization is going to last, even if Russia is in serious trouble. Because if Russia tips into being too weak, into too collapsed, there's a whole separate security nightmare that will absorb European political, military, economic social energy and factor in say Egypt's collapse if that happens. And so I think in that sense, that militarization is now permanent and I think will bind European military and political and economic resources in its own European neighborhood and will make it very difficult for Europeans to play any significant role in the Indo-Pacific. Geography can be a luxury. Whilst the UK and France are thousands of kilometers from the Russian borders, for Poland, Romania, the Baltics, and most notably Ukraine, the threat for Moscow is always front of mind. To these nations, Russia is a country that could be an annoying neighbor one day and racing tanks toward your capital in the next. So what are these countries doing to prepare 
for a possible Russian threat in the future. How quickly will they be able to do it? And is Eastern Europe shaping up to become the impregnable shield to defend the rest of the continent? Where to answer that? We turn to our third guest. Part 3. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and some withdrew. Domestically, the game is all about quantity right now. It's all about rate production. It's all about finding slack in the system that they can use to produce more quantity. There was reporting that came out that there are some workshops in Siberia that don't produce new tank hulls, but there's now a contract to modernize 800 of the old T-62s. Those vehicles were retired. They never would have been brought back into active service were it not for this war. But now because there's capacity in this location and the Russians are looking at this factory saying, hey, we can't use this to produce T-90M. What can we produce there? Well, we can modernize T-62. Well, the contract goes out and that's what they decide to produce there. Perun is a well-renowned defense analyst with a focus on defense economics, industrial capacity, and the global arms market. Having worked in government and throughout private industry, he's produced some of the best economic analysis around the conflict in Ukraine and has become a respected authority online and throughout the industry. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. At the same time, what they're producing is also changing to meet what they're able to supply in terms of their supply chain. Wartime austerity versions of some of their hardware go out into service. Uh, so, for example, many of the most modern Russian tanks will have the, the Sosna U as their site. So, relatively good quality thermal imager, but it relies on components that they now have difficulty sourcing and producing. So, we're now seeing tanks of that version go out with older versions of the site that they can produce domestically so that they can maintain production. They can meet the requirement for quantity even in this sort of sanctions-constrained environment. And the final thing that I don't think they ever would have done during peacetime is the purchases of foreign systems from Iran on a very, very large scale. We've seen those very, very publicly, and they're likely going to continue in scale. And that really is uh, an emergency wartime measure. Many of Russia's systems are higher capability than the things they bring in from Iran, but when you're quantity limited, you look for whatever source you can find, and Iran has proven to be one of the sources the Russians can turn to. So whilst a lot of this piece has stemmed around the future purchases of tanks and equipment, the Russians are actually looking at some of their older purchases. In particular, the gargantuan amount of Cold War-era tanks they currently have lying in storage. From multiple reports, we have seen that Moscow is beginning to pull some of these tanks out of storage, hoping to refit and deploy into the battlefield. But how successful do you think this refitting program will be? And whilst we're on it, is refitting and putting into the battlefield an option that would be available for the Western nations as well? Look, I'll include the caveat up front that it's hard to tell exactly how well the Russians are doing. Like, it's a bit of a black box. It's clear that it's happening on a large scale, and I'd say it's been vital to their staying power so far based on what we can see. As early as September last year, something like 600 to 700 tanks had disappeared from Russia's storage depots. Now, that doesn't mean they're all necessarily in service. They might be being dragged off to be modernized or cannibalized for parts, but they are disappearing. At the same time, we're seeing more and more of this old hardware that wasn't in large-scale service before February 2022, now appearing in service. I think as soon as April last year, we were seeing Russian propaganda footage showing some quite old towed artillery that shouldn't have been in service in large numbers, but they were choosing to show it off. So as these casualties and losses of equipment mount, that pool of reserved equipment is one of the first things the Russians can turn to. The question is, what is the quality and quantity there? How much can go into service with a little bit of work? How much is going to need to go into a factory rebuild, the way those T-62s are going to go through factory rebuild and upgrading? How much of it is only good to be cannibalized for parts and how much doesn't exist at all? 
because there's some really, really high estimates of uh, Russian reserve hardware out there, you know, 12,000 reserve tanks or whatever. You look at the satellite footage and most a significant portion of that appears to just not exist at all or be in such a terrible state that you can assess even visually that you'll never be able to restore that vehicle into service. But absolutely vital. And it's not just the tanks. It's the artillery systems. It's the infantry fighting vehicles. We're seeing more and more BMP-1 appear on the Russian side because they've got more of them in reserve than they do for BMP-2. In terms of what Western powers can do in terms of reserved equipment, there's already some of that happening. Western European nations don't have the same deep reserves the Russians did in terms of there are no fields and fields of thousands of armoured vehicles in the equivalent of the Siberian waste to be brought back into service. But the, the recent announcement of the, the Leopard 1A5s, so 100 plus of those coming into Ukraine, multinational coalition, those tanks were not in service, they were in storage, they'll be restored and they'll be sent to Ukraine. If in the future Spain decides to spend more, send more Leopard 2s than they've currently announced, those will have to be restored from stock that is not currently in service. So there is some supply of this out there. And what about the Americans? The Americans have an awful lot of hardware in storage. Not as much on paper as the Russians, but several thousand Bradleys, thousands upon thousands of Abrams. I think it's 800 and something uh, M109 A6 Paladins. So the Americans do have a lot significant amount of hardware in reserve. There are barriers to getting that hardware reactivated and deployed to Ukraine, but the option is there if the time, the money and the political will is available to start reactivating and shipping some of that equipment. But the Americans are a bit of a unique case in that regard. It's hard to believe that it's been almost a year since Russia's February push into the rest of Ukraine. And I'm sure, as you would remember, those first few weeks were very touch and go for the Ukrainians. And for the West, it was absolutely crucial to get Ukraine everything they needed to fight off those first big thrusts by Russia into the country. And without a doubt, those first few weeks of March and April were chaotic. I still remember footage coming out around that period of men walking about in plain clothes, holding US anti-tank Javelin missiles, with only a coloured armband to identify them. Most of what we sent Ukraine during this very early period were stockpiles Europe just had lying about anyway, kept in storage in case of a Russian invasion of Europe. But with most of those stockpiles now burnt through, what are we sending Ukraine now? When the invasion happens, there's a, there's a phase of panic. What can we supply right this second that will make a difference? And what the Ukrainians are asking for is something that can stop the tanks and preferably also uh, defend against helicopters and air threats. So what can you send that you can train on in an afternoon to give your you know, bloke with an armband a chance against a tank? Well, you send as many shoulder-fired ATGMs or man pads as possible. So Javelin, Enlaw, those are the systems that get famous. But also all the old Warsaw Pact states and the Germans also dig up everything they can find from that era that can be fired from the shoulder, they send that. What changes over time is the equipment gets heavier and the origination of that equipment changes too. So the next real phase was when we started seeing heavy Warsaw Pact equipment start to go. The Poles in particular and the Czechs, they wasted no time. They started getting old T-72 model tanks moving across that border. I think in April last year is the first time we had visually confirmed tanks from Poland and SPGs and IFEs start to move over. But there's only so much of that to go around. Europe has a, has a finite supply of old Warsaw Pact equipment because they've been transitioning over to NATO equipment. So we've seen this transition where we start to supply Ukraine more and more NATO standard kit. First with the artillery systems, now also ground-based air defenses, very high profile announcement around the main battle tanks, but probably the most impactful is introducing Western artillery so that we can supply 155 mil 
or we can supply Gimlas for HIMARS, systems that we have more reserve of than 152 Soviet, for example. There just aren't the massive bunkers in Europe to supply that sort of uh, ammunition forever. And then more and more complex equipment as time goes on. So ground-based air defences, battle tanks, things that need more training, more time before introduction, more logistical back-end, that eventually the Ukrainians are going to need because there's a finite supply of Warsaw Pact kit. In terms of how sustainable that is, it really depends on the system category that you're talking about. Some things, for example, would be very, very sustainable. You've seen some air defense systems that we've sent can fire AIM-120, AIM-9. These are Western standard air-to-air missiles. Those are available in very large numbers. Chance of that being exhausted, very, very low. And then there's systems that are in just very limited supply. Um, and as a result, you've seen that sort of supply rate decline. Javelin is not going to Ukraine in the same numbers it did in those early days. Because it was so quick to move, it was so quick to move the storages over and the production line is what it is, you're not seeing them shipped at the same rate now. But the Ukrainians might say that's okay because we're getting more and more heavier equipment. So we're watching not just Ukraine, but many European nations using this war to clean out their closets of old equipment and instead replace it with brand new items. But undergoing that overhauling of your army is usually easier said than done. And not everyone is as keen to pay out the large amount of capital, and some countries may see more benefit in having five older Russian-style tanks as opposed to one brand new German-style tank. So can you take us through some of the challenges a Germany, a Poland, and a Bulgaria would have undertaking a large-scale refit of their armed forces? So it's requirements and resources. Poland is very, very clear on what its requirements are. It perceives a real conventional security threat, and as a result, it wants a capable, relatively large army that is configured to provide conventional deterrence against potential Russian aggression. They see that as requiring a transition over to Western equipment, both for the reasons of interoperability with the West, but also because they want to obtain a qualitative advantage. It's not an easy process. And what countries that have had to make the transition often do, as we've seen in Poland's case, is you seek a technology transfer partner, someone who is already producing a bit of equipment and you import some of it and then you move to producing versions domestically with more and more local components. You train up your local workforce until eventually you can produce and maintain it all domestically. Poland is entirely capable of producing something like PT-91. They can produce things in the Warsaw Pact family and they've been steadily moving their way towards being able to produce systems that are entirely Western in nature and now they arguably can in some categories. Germany absorbed the East German forces, but they weren't going to commit to using those designs long run. They were happy to run down that military capital, so to speak. This is a gross oversimplification, but they were happy to use some of that equipment for a while. But if you look at the, the future of the Bundeswehr, there's no Warsaw Pact heritage in the equipment that they're going to be using in the long run. Their industrial base is key to produce Western-type equipment. They're a major exporter in that field, so there's every reason to keep producing that equipment and also to keep iterating it so that you're active on the export market. Bulgaria's problem, I suspect, is just resources. This is an expensive process. You would need to bring in new machine tooling. You need to find the international partner. You need to pay licensing. You need to train up a new workforce. And then somehow you need to be cost competitive on the international market or you need domestic orders that are big enough to sustain that industry. Polish defense industry can do a great job selling to the Polish government during its military modernization process and maybe selling it to the rest of Europe. I think Bulgaria trying to become a leader in selling NATO standard systems into NATO is a little bit more of an ask. And production is something that takes time as well. I think a classic example is in the recent announcement that Germany will be sending more Leopard tanks into Ukraine and the announcement of a 100 billion euro defense revamp. So how long do you think it will take for these tanks to hit the Ukrainian battlefield and for this 100 billion euro fund 
to start really shaping the German army. There will be a tail end for some of these decisions, depending on the systems that stretches out towards, what, the end of the 2020s, the early 2030s, before everything that's being talked about now has been funded. Because not everything's going to be funded from the, the 100 billion euro special fund. That's going to answer some of the immediate requirements. So, for example, they'll get their F-35s. But there will be ongoing transformational requirements for the Bundeswehr that stretch out for years that haven't even been budgeted for yet, let alone contracted. They may not even have the full... A requirement locked down and negotiated. So it's a long transformation process. That's a far longer process than just moving a bit of equipment from Germany into Ukraine. That's a question of how quickly can we train up the crews? How quickly can we put logistics in place? Uh, can we be sure they're not going to break down a kilometer from Russian lines and get dragged off and we have a propaganda problem as well as a military problem because the equipment hasn't been sustained properly. But in terms of transforming a military, that can take a very, very long time, particularly in the naval sector. Armies tend to transform a little bit faster than navies do just because shipbuilding plans tend to be so long and you need to plan, in some cases, decades in advance for roughly the fleet size that you want and what sort of capabilities you need in your shipyards, for example. So if the answer is, when is the Bundeswehr going to be new? Well, how long is a piece of string? The transformation process will be continuous, but how far it goes and how quickly it moves is going to depend on the decisions the government makes in terms of funding and priorities. The battering the Russian army is taking in Ukraine is surely going to force Russian defence planners to make some serious doctrinal adjustments in the future. And I want to play that out a bit. So as a bit of a hypothetical here, let's say that Russia and Ukraine throw out their spring offensives and neither is successful. And the war solidifies into pretty solid battle lines, ending in a Transnistria or 2021 Donbass-style situation. There are front lines, the two are still at war, and the occasional shell will get thrown, but the front mostly goes quiet, with neither side having the strength to really break the other. At that point, with Moscow having a little bit of breathing room to start doing post-mortems, what ideas do you think Russian defense planners going forward would prescribe to? The issue that Russia faces in that sort of long war scenario, and I often see the narrative that, hey, time favors the Russians, the Russians would be super happy with a frozen conflict. There may be political reasons to make that judgment, because maybe a frozen conflict is less threatening than outright defeat or concession, for example. But from a military perspective, you're looking, you're talking about a scenario in which Russia is economically in relatively dire straits compared to where it would be in a no-conflict scenario. So even if the economy is not massively shrinking year on year, there's a lot of pressure on the budget, there's a lot of reconstruction work to do in the areas that they occupy, and a lot of equipment has been lost and needs to be replaced. So there's a lot of competition there for the Russian defense budget. And what I find hard to imagine is where they would find the allocation to completely rebuild the military rapidly from the ground up. And so you may see them keeping older equipment that they have restored in service as a stopgap while they try and do reconstruction one component at a time. What's interesting is we still see them making announcements suggesting they want to do further investments in the Navy, that they want to make further investments in strategic and nuclear-capable weapon systems. To me, that strikes me as a luxury they might not be able to afford in a frozen conflict scenario, because you have to imagine there's always a risk of fighting breaking out again, there's always a risk of skirmishing, and as a result, Russia's conventional military will have to be prioritized. So I don't know how rapidly they would be able to do a rebuild in that scenario. As we've said, it's a matter of resources, and resources will be tight and in very high demand in a post-war but frozen conflict scenario, I would think. In that same frozen Ukraine scenario, what are the Europeans doing going forward? Are we filling up Estonia with every tank we have, 
or rebuilding up stockpiles that could be sent quickly in case Russia tries again in somewhere like Ukraine or Moldova or Georgia. Bearing in mind there's been a lot of rhetoric but different countries are at different points in the spectrum of moving from rhetoric to budgeting to procurement to fielding. Different countries are at different levels along that, that line of progress, with Poland moving about as fast as it is possible to move and others being a little slower. It seems to be that there are some countries, particularly those that would find themselves on the border, so Poland again is a good example, but it's not the only one, that are putting a lot of emphasis on having a military that is capable of either deterring some sort of conventional aggression or exercising influence in their border areas. Poland seems to be building towards a military which is capable of preventing any conventional fight pushing into the interior of Poland itself, even in the scenario that the Russians come through Belarus or Ukraine or anything like that. But I do think in general, there is some consensus around the idea of contributing to NATO high readiness task forces, which presumably would be pointed east as the primary threat basis. So you see some reinvigoration of conventional arms across the European continent, albeit to different degrees. As for the ability to supply Ukraine, I would be shocked if in a frozen war scenario there isn't some consideration given to what is the resupply plan in the event that the conflict goes hot again. That would strike me as a pretty logical requirement and something that would inform procurement planning. Stoltenberg's commentary recently that more should have been done for Ukraine before Russia invaded, I think that's pertinent and would, you could arguably interpret that as saying, well, if we were in the same situation again in the future, we wouldn't make that same mistake. We would make sure that the training, the logistics was in place. So in the event that we needed to move a bunch of platforms into Ukraine quickly, the capability was there. And what about the US? In this same scenario, do you think Washington will be building up its position in Europe again like they did during the Cold War? Or once Ukraine cools down, Washington will handball this theater back to the Europeans and Europe will once again become a bit of a sideshow to the US? I'll take a view based on the interpretation of what America has chosen to send and how it's interacted with the conflict so far, which is to say that America is clearly very focused on maintaining readiness for other scenarios. Those scenarios are presumably in the Pacific. So the rhetoric around we can't supply certain systems because it would impact our readiness for other contingencies, that shows that they regard being prepared for a Pacific contingency as sufficiently important that it might throttle their supply to the European theatre. So I don't think that there is any sign so far of a massive American rebalance towards Europe. Um, there will obviously be, and there obviously has been a change in the forward deployment of American troops in Europe. There will probably be more planning around stockpiling and war reserves. Those will probably be rebuilt if there's any opportunity to rebuild them. And some resources have deployed from stockpiles in Asia. So the movement of ammunition from South Korea to Europe, for example, but I don't think we're moving back to the middle late Cold War. And I think America's eyes in strategic terms are still very much locked on the Pacific. To the extent that they're intervening quite decisively in Ukraine, I think that's driven by Pacific interests as well. That America sees what happens in Ukraine as critical to providing deterrence and messaging in the Pacific about how America could respond to potential acts of aggression by other powers. In the early stages of February 2022, it was obvious what needed to be done. The European nations needed to take all of the Warsaw Pact shells, guns and ammunition that you've been keeping safe in your bunker for years in case of a Russian invasion and give it all to Ukraine. After all, if Russia wasn't blunted here, it would surely mean Ukraine today, Moldova tomorrow, and who knows after that. But now in 2023, 
Those bunkers are empty, and the Ukrainians are burning through more ammunition than you can produce, leaving the Western powers with only a few options. Should they invest billions in starting up more factories that make Warsaw-packed equipment, allowing Europe to continue to funnel shells to the Ukrainians, but would require millions of dollars of investment and have little use after the war in Ukraine? The other option is to move Ukraine to the NATO standard, but that would mean having to retrain the Ukrainians on all new gear. So far, the Ukrainians have adapted to it incredibly well, but there's more complicated gear still to come. And thanks to there being no NATO standard within Europe and the complicated patchwork of defense industry systems, you might have to train them on Polish gear and German gear and French gear and British gear as each nation begins to donate bits and bobs. Donating Ukraine gear to NATO also means special ordering in order to donate to Ukraine, rather than before, which was just the equipment sitting in crates getting old anyway. But even with all this in mind, you know that every time a Ukrainian shoots your $200,000 anti-tank rocket, more than the majority of the time, it knocks out a $4 million Russian tank. And economically, that's a bargain to knock out a tank today that could be used to threaten you in a few years' time. So, what should the Europeans do? Rebuild some of the old Warsaw Pact armaments to maintain the ability to supply Ukraine today and possibly supply Georgia or other countries tomorrow? Or bite the bullet, get further invested in Ukraine, and make sure Ukraine operates with the same equipment that NATO's best do? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. Leopards for Lagoons. So the war in Ukraine has been a huge strategic shock. It isn't a shock that started in 2022. This is a conflict that's been going on since 2014 in one way or another. So there'd already been a big shift in kind of European thinking about Russia as a threat and in thinking about defense and the need for defense spending and maintaining both the armed forces, but also the defense industrial bases and workforces that supply those armed forces with the equipment and technology that they need. James Black is the assistant director of the Defense and Security Research Group at RAND Europe and the lead for the Defense Strategy, Policy and Capability Research portfolio at RAND, as well as the European lead for the RAND Space Enterprise Initiative and advisors at the Center for Defense Economics and Acquisition. Beyond RAND though, he's also a non-resident NATO 2030 fellow and has provided strategy and policy to groups ranging from the UK MOD to NATO to the Australian, Finnish and Norwegian armies and even the US defense agencies. And on top of that, He's also actively involved in wargaming, including as the lead designer of strategic exercises at the Royal College of Defence Studies, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today. A number of countries across Europe had already taken steps to increase their defence spending. There'd, there'd then been the election of Donald Trump, which had further heightened the pressure on European allies within NATO to do more and to get closer to, if not meet, the 2% of GDP target that NATO has for spending as well as some of the other subsidiary targets that NATO has around how that money gets spent. So spending more money on kit and new technology rather than just spending money on salaries and pensions for soldiers, for example. So there was already a lot of that activity, but, but really activity is accelerated in the last year with the invasion of February 2022. So there's been a lot of short-term pressure to just get troops and vehicles and kit ready and out the door and supported 
and maintained and repaired and all these sorts of things. And then, of course, there's been the added pressure of then giving lots of equipment as well as training and, and other kind of wider support to the Ukrainian armed forces who are obviously fighting, you know, a very bloody and, and for them existential war with, with Russia. That has really exposed the shortcomings in stockpiles and in readiness of equipment. So both the number of assets that we have in, in, the, in militaries across Europe, but also, you know, how well repaired they are, how ready they are to go, how well trained people are to use them, you know, what the lead times are for getting them deployed somewhere they can do something useful. It's really put a lot of pressure on all of those kind of logistics systems and stockpiles. And it's exposed that there isn't really enough of some of the things that you would need in a high-end war. And obvious examples of things like ammunition and missiles, where the Ukrainians have been burning through artillery shells at a rate that is far, 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 far beyond you know, anything that NATO experienced fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq, for example. You know, by orders of magnitude, they're burning through kind of thousands of shells. And there are only so many in your stockpiles. So the question then becomes, how quickly can you replenish stuff? But also, what do you need to replenish? So there is there is both the kind of near-term pressure to buy and ship stuff that the Ukrainians need for their immediate operations against the Russians. And then there is a slightly longer-term question around what less can we learn from the Ukrainian fighting experience with the Russians? You know, what technology does work and doesn't work? You know, where are we seeing innovation in terms of tactics and equipment that perhaps we should be learning about ourselves in Western Europe and incorporating into the, the military equipment that we design and use for the future? All these sorts of questions. So we're having to both kind of rearm and recapitalize for the near term for our own benefit and at the same time think about the Ukrainian needs and at the same time think about why the, the equipment that we might need in the future might be slightly different to the equipment that the Ukrainians are using right now. The war in Ukraine has really been a great demonstration of economics over strength, with consumer-grade drones, cheaper Turkish drones and improvised surveillance being absolute game changers on the battlefield in Ukraine. After seeing the successes with this technology, do you think this will shape the purchasing patterns of some of the Western powers going forward? Yeah, this is this is a kind of debate that's been going on for for decades in defence, but it has really accelerated in in recent years with the advent of new technologies such as autonomy and robotics and drones and, and stuff like that. Which is whether you should be looking to ever more advanced, more exquisite, more highly capable, but therefore more expensive, high end systems that have got all of the bells and whistles. They're gold plated. They can do anything you like in anything any context and they can do it very well, but they're ruinously expensive. And so you can only afford a very small number of them. Or are you better off going for kind of cheap and cheerful solutions, largely using commercial kind of civilian technologies that have then been adapted in a relatively minor way for military use, which you can buy in large numbers and you can just throw at the problem. And it doesn't really matter from a kind of cost perspective if you lose some of those assets because they weren't very expensive to begin with. So that's a kind of been a, a tension that's been playing out for, for a while. And there, there's this idea that gets discussed in kind of the US defense context that they were looking at analogy that gets drawn when they were thinking about fighter aircraft, which is that every new generation of fighter aircraft, it's got better sensors, better engines, it's stealthier, it's got all the different bells and whistles. But they get more and more expensive, so you can't have as many of them. And if you were to actually extrapolate those trends far enough into the future, you'd eventually reach the point where you basically have the Starship Enterprise. So you have some highly kind of capable single vessel, but you can only afford one of them. And there's a kind of running joke within kind of defense economists, which admittedly is a pretty niche comedy scene, 
But um, it's the kind of running joke that you get to a point where, you know, the Marine Corps can have it on the weekends, the Navy get it Monday through Wednesday, and the Air Force get it, you know, in the afternoons on a Thursday. You end up having to share fewer and fewer assets, and they're called upon to do more and more things. So faced with the kind of pressures of cost growth and cost escalation in defence equipment, the solution would seem to be to try and go for more of a mix of high and low, a high-low mix, and get a small number of very capable assets to do the things that you really, really need them to do and that nothing else you know, is good enough for. And then lots and lots of cheap and cheerful civilian drones and stuff like that to, do, to give you mass and to give you quantity at an affordable price. The drones, the tanks, the artillery, the planes, these are all very much required. But is there a worry that they're putting too many eggs in just a few baskets and pushing aside the Navy in particular? And that if a future conflict pops up that is more naval focused, that the European powers may be stuck in the same situation of being caught unprepared for that war all over again? There's a recurring theme in defense strategy if you look over the last few decades or even centuries which is that militaries generally prepare for the last war. We have a set of assumptions around what war would look like in the 1980s, which would be that you'd be fighting the Russians and it would be superpower versus superpower, capitalism versus communism, potentially nuclear war. And then actually what, what rolled about in the, you know, after the Soviet Union collapse was you had an intervention against Iraq in early 1990s. You had humanitarian interventions in the Balkans late in the 1990s. And then you had the war on terror, which was, you know, fighting insurgents armed with AK-47s and improvised explosive devices and Toyota pickup trucks, um, not fighting, you know, state actors with sophisticated proper militaries. We, we then thought that the future of war was counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, and then suddenly Russia came back on the scene in everyone's minds. And so there is this kind of recurring pattern of potentially fighting the last war if you're not careful. So there absolutely is a danger that we focus exclusively on Ukraine and tell ourselves that this, you know, this tells us what the future of war will look like, when in fact it tells us what the future of war in a specific context will look like. And the type of war that you would need to prepare for against Russia which is inherently likely to be more land-centric because of the geography of, of Europe, is very different potentially to the type of war that the US is thinking about it might have to fight against China at some point in the future, where obviously there isn't that much land in the Pacific Ocean. It's quite a lot of water, quite a lot of distance. And so the kind of forces and force structures that you would design to solve a problem like defending Taiwan, for example, against China, would look very different, given the emphasis on, on naval and air capabilities, to the kind of force that you might design for dealing with Russia. Equally, even when you're talking about Russia, there's a question about, for individual NATO countries, what do they contribute to any collective NATO effort? And do, how do they best specialise? Because not everyone can do everything. And this is certainly a live debate in the UK at the moment, for example, where if you look at the UK's defence reviews and spending reviews over the last kind of five years, ten years, you could argue that the Navy has actually done very well there. And it's the the army and particularly the kind of armoured force of the British Army that has really suffered from under, kind of chronic underinvestment for a number of years. Focus more on naval and, and air and cyber and space and those sorts of power projection. You know, that may make sense for the UK as an island nation to the northwest of Europe. But it only makes sense if there are other people in Europe who are then spending money on, you know, tanks and armoured vehicles and other things to offset. 
So this, this then brings you to the question of coordination. And this is an area where historically there have been a lot of kind of well-meaning political initiatives to improve the coordination of defence spending and capability development across Europe or across NATO. But the reality is that they haven't gone far enough or really succeeded. So even if we push aside the worry that moving to this land-centric, armour-heavy doctrine may not work well for future battles in rural Mali or the narrow mountain roads of Taiwan, how long are these changes actually going to take to be rolled out? And how difficult will it be to pivot back to a different strategy if we see another large geopolitical event come to pass? On that, on that first question, things take time. You know, there is no quick solution. The best time to have started to order all the stuff you now need for Ukraine would have been many years ago. But you can't just click your fingers and suddenly hundreds of new tanks or thousands of new missiles or whatever run off of a production line. It's always difficult if you have underinvested in a capability to build it back up at speed, uh, certainly without incurring very large financial costs. And that's because it's not just a question of pumping more products out of a factory. It's whether you even have the people and skills in sufficient numbers to staff that factory. And then to, once you've produced whatever the product is, take it into service in the military, train people on how to use it, and then deploy it, and then wrap around it all of the other stuff that goes around equipment to make a capability. Because it's not just kit that gives you a capability. You know, you could have as many tanks or planes as you like, but if you haven't got pilots, you haven't got the ground crew, you haven't got the logistics and the supply chains, you haven't worked out your tactics, techniques and procedures, you haven't you know, integrated that capability with all of your other systems, you know, you haven't made sure the radios talk to each other and all these sorts of things, it's not going to be terribly useful. And all of that is very complex and, and takes time. So there is a kind of dilemma here for Western countries as to how much they prioritise their near-term needs. So should they just produce stuff that we already have designed and the kind of proven technologies and try and pump as many of those out as quickly as possible to meet near-term needs. That reduces the risk that there is in the next kind of one to five years, that probably reduces the risk that you face, but maybe increases the risk that you face five to 10 years in, because what it means is you've spent a whole load of money on today's technology, but you had, you've underinvested in tomorrow's technology. So maybe then the future threat, you, you find yourself off in a, a worse situation. So that's one kind of temporal dilemma they face. What about continental integration? Surely we can solve a lot of these financial crunches and almost double our output by simply integrating Europe's defense industries, making one super industry rather than lots of little boutique ones, following the exact same model as the European auto, manufacturing, agricultural sectors. Is there a chance that the EU will go down that road? There's been a lot of political initiatives in this space. There's been a lot of kind of well-meaning statements going back kind of 20 years. The European Commission has really tried to push hard to get European nations to spend more of their defence spending on European programmes rather than just national programmes and to avoid the kind of fragmentation of the market and to try and encourage more economies of scale and, and not have seven different companies that are all pretty bad at making the same thing rather than merging them to create one market, one proper European defence market. But it's really struggled. And even with the new European Defence Fund and other initiatives where the EU is spending more money, it's still ultimately a small player compared to the money being spent at the national level. So that means you have to change the decision making at the national level. And there, there's all sorts of reasons why there hasn't been a more decisive shift towards consolidation of the industrial base. There are certainly kind of nationalistic pride reasons. People like having the ability to make military kits. 
It's a source of political pride. It's a sort. It's an opportunity for politicians to have photos of them in tanks riding around looking like strong, decisive leaders. So there is a big P and a small P political angle to it. There's also obviously a, a question around jobs and the economy. And it's not just that, you know, working in the defense industry and the wider supply chain, because there is a huge supply chain of people who probably don't think of themselves as working in the defense industry, but they will be making small parts that are fed up into the defense industry and then used to make aircraft or tanks or whatever. We're talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Those rightly decision makers want to protect those jobs. Many of those jobs are often also clustered in certain regions. So shipbuilders, as you'd expect, are next to the sea. Often they are in regions that don't have huge numbers of other kind of major employers. And so perhaps the shipyard is the big anchor employer in that region. And if they go out of business, that's going to affect that, that entire cities and regions. And they also want the exports. If you sell a French jet to someone in the Middle East or somewhere else, that brings billions of euros of return potentially to the economy. And then finally, yeah, the military absolutely have a role to play here as well, because the, there has been a tendency to, first of all, to kind of emphasize national requirements and not be willing to compromise on them. So, you know, when designing a new aircraft, every military will define the specifications that aircraft has to meet slightly differently, and they will feel that those are all desperately important, and they may well be true. But the reality is if they were willing to compromise on a few of those requirements and cooperate with other people, they might actually be able to afford more of those aircraft, they might be cheaper, you know, supplies might be easier, those sorts of things. And then the final bit for the military is, is the security supply. So if you are fighting a war and you're using foreign equipment, can you be 100% sure that the foreign supplier of that equipment, even if it's a close ally, is gonna look after your needs in a war? And this is where there's issues of trust if you're buying a foreign fighter aircraft, for example, there's a lot of software in there that you might not even have seen the code for as a customer. And so you are kind of relying on, by, by trust and by faith, that there is nothing in that software that you, know, you wouldn't want to be there. Uh, and you're relying on your ally to be there to fix that software for you in a war if something goes wrong and not to just prioritize their own needs. So it ultimately comes down to these kind of really difficult questions of sovereignty and pride and, and money. And, and so there is a case to be made for coordinating more because ultimately you get more bang for your buck if you spend money efficiently together, but you have to overcome some really messy politics at the kind of local, regional and national level to, to get to that, unfortunately. Well, whilst Europe are all focused on Ukraine, many here on the other side of the planet are still keeping a nervous eye on Taiwan. So Ukraine was in a bit of a lucky position that they could be supplied so easily, sharing a direct border with NATO and surrounded by other former Warsaw Pact nations who had large stockpiles of the armaments the Ukraine uses just sitting around. A very different situation to what Taiwan currently sits in. So in a few years time, if there was a somewhat surprise invasion of Taiwan by China, like Ukraine, there might only be a few weeks before the war is decided. And with no land border to easily transport goods across, the logistics and transport around the situation become exponentially more difficult. So with Europe prioritizing and purchasing these new high-quality ammunition stockpiles and emphasizing trucks and artillery, is there a worry that the equipment they're buying would be the exact opposite of the equipment that you would need for a war in Taiwan? That when that time comes around, we're bringing a bread knife to a steak dinner. With the invasion of Ukraine, a lot of parallels have been drawn to Taiwan in the sense of it is a small democratic nation that is potentially threatened by a large authoritarian neighbour, which the West may want to support indirectly, even if it's not 
perhaps wanting to get into a direct confrontation with said authoritarian neighbor. However, there are, yeah, there are lots of important differences geographically, politically, et cetera, et cetera, that, that really come into play here. And it's important to be mindful of them. So certainly if there were any future conflicts over Taiwan, geography dictates that the type of capabilities that the Taiwanese or anyone else involved in the conflict would need would, would necessarily be quite different. They, they would be focused clearly on on, on kind of naval and air power and on defeating very large numbers of Chinese ships, submarines, aircraft, missiles, drones, etc, etc. And it would be very difficult to supply stuff to Taiwan in the way that you can supply stuff to Ukraine, because clearly it's an island and it would be under some sort of blockade or, or threat of invasion. So... There's then a wider, so that's a kind of fundamental geographical difference. There's then also a broader question around the way in which, you know, Russia or China would approach any war. And there's rightly been a lot of criticism, not only of Russia's intentions in starting the war in the first place, but also of how it has performed as a military power in the war, particularly early on with the kind of embarrassment of its failure to, to, cap, to seize the capital, Kyiv, and, and its complete underestimation of the will and capacity of the Ukrainians to fight. And we've seen all sorts of problems with Russian equipment and training and logistics and leadership and tactics and morale and all sorts of things. You can't necessarily count on that being the case. Any future war involving China or anybody else, because they, if they were sensible, they would have tried to learn some lessons from this, this Russian experience. And then there's also a kind of third point, which is the question of, well, what role would Europe, if any, be playing in that sort of a situation? So Ukraine is part of Europe geographically, politically, even though it's not part of the EU and, and NATO obviously has ties. And, and then, you know, culturally and socially, you know, Taiwan is is very far away by comparison. So there's all sorts of problems around, first of all, what would be the political appetite of European governments and of their populations to support Taiwan in the same way that they would support Ukraine. I'm not saying that they wouldn't, but it would be a, a different conversation that would be had um, just by dint of those differences. There would be a question around the appetite for economic decoupling with China and how you manage that, just as there's been questions around how you handle the decoupling from Russia and all of the energy security problems that's thrown up and the cost of living crisis and all these issues. So all of those would have to be worked through. And then even if at that point, once you manage to kind of establish a view on how, like what your strategy was for dealing with this period crisis, it's unclear that the Europeans would be able to do a, a tremendous about, amount about it. It's clearly going to be the Americans, if they were involved in this conflict, that would be doing the lion's share, to say the least. You know, there just isn't a sizable military footprint for any European power in the Indo-Pacific. France has a small number of assets out there because it has a number of Pacific territories. The UK has increased its ambition region and has started positioning kind of very small numbers of naval assets and other things in the area, as well as doing joint exercises with people like Japan. But these are fairly token presences compared to the very large scale American Navy, Air Force and to a lesser extent Army presence. Really, there wouldn't be a huge role for, for Europe to play beyond perhaps kind of a politically symbolic one or, or providing certain niche support. What instead the pressure might be for, for Europe is to try and do more in its own backyard to enable the Americans to worry less about Europe and focus more on Pacific and China. So this is where you get into the debate about whether really the kind of European NATO allies focus should be on on Russia and dealing with European security problems and then perhaps things in their near abroad like North Africa or the Middle East 
enabling the US to, to do less in those regions, to pull back a little bit and, and focus its attentions more on the Pacific and the threat of China. So looking at the militaries of the British, the French and the Germans, what do you think will be the biggest doctrinal change between before the February 2022 invasion and now with the war in full swing? All of the kind of Western European allies are looking very closely at what's happening in Ukraine and have kind of various lessons learned initiatives going on within their militaries and so on to try and pick up the lessons, not just at the tactical level of, you know, what works well about a particular uh, anti-tank missile or how do the Russians hide their tanks in, in forests or whatever little kind of tactical issues they're focusing on. They're also looking at that broader picture of what, what is happening at the strategic level in terms of NATO unity and how you maintain that. What is happening in terms of the impact of economic sanctions? Do they really work? If so, how can you use them better in future? If they don't work, what do you do about that? They're thinking about the future of Russia. What happens to Russia after the war in Ukraine? What happens to Putin and his control and power? What happens to the Russian military modernization effort and their priorities? If you were to fight a war with Russia at some point in the future after Ukraine, of course, the Russians themselves would have learned a whole load of lessons and would have integrated those more or less effectively. And clearly, they've struggled to integrate past lessons from previous wars because they're, they're struggling in Ukraine. But you would have to plan on there being a different Russia to the Russia that we see today. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. So I think we're at the, the point now where people recognize that there will be lessons. I think it's premature to say defensively what those lessons will be, but we are definitely picking up some examples on the battlefield and off the battlefield. So on the battlefield, we're picking up things like the need for mass. So you need numbers. It's not enough to just have a, a very small number of ca highly capable troops or equipment because they won't last that long ultimately in a highly lethal, destructive, high tempo war such as we're seeing in Ukraine. So you do just need mass and mass costs money. You, you need, therefore, also the kind of technology to, to enable mass, which is where you get into the discussion we had earlier around, around drones and kind of cheap and cheerful dual-use um, technologies where possible. Really need to improve kind of command and control and the kill chain that links together a sensor that sees an enemy tank or an aircraft or whatever, and then passes that information through secure communication links to the people who, who need it. And then they can make an informed decision and then they can you know, deliver whatever effect, an artillery strike or a missile or whatever, as quickly as possible. Because what we're really seeing is two competing systems and you need yours to be more agile and more resilient than the other guys. We're also seeing lessons around the importance of logistics and the fact that that is often overlooked. We're seeing important lessons around training and the role of NCOs and junior officers and unit morale and all these sorts of things. So there's also very practical lessons that people will take away and they will debate whether it means you need more or less tanks, more or less anti-tank missiles, more or less drones, all these sorts of things. But then stepping back, there's then the broader lessons around the relationship with broader society. So Ukrainians have been successful because they have shown an ability to mobilize all of society to defend the nation. They have ex exhibited very strong political leadership from Zelensky. Uh, and they've maintained high morale and will to fight against initially very, very, very imposing odds indeed. And they, they remain very daunting even today, even after their recent successes. All of those lessons need to be learned, but it really depends on how things play out. And so this is why it's obviously important that support continues to be provided to Ukraine so that you can shape the outcomes in as positive a direction as, as possible. When I tell you defence spending is the most opaque and malleable part of the budget, I could be describing almost any nation in the world. As an example, 
As much as you may see the Germans stand up and say, we're committed to rebuilding the German armoured forces, that statement could mean anything from, well, we're finally going to refit the German armoured headquarters barracks with better Wi-Fi, to Germany committing to producing 100 next-gen state-of-the-art German tanks. And even with a commitment to those sort of tanks, there's no guarantee on how quickly they'll reach the battlefield or how usable they will be. Since the first wave of announcements regarding European rearmament, most of the opening proposals by these militaries are somewhat scattergun to say the least, with several analysts critiquing the usefulness of some of these projects. As an example, what does Master of the Seas Britain need with 100 heavy tanks when Poland is already committed to ordering hundreds of heavy tanks themselves, giving them more heavy tanks than they probably need, whilst also neglecting two nations' navies? Even when we move to the French, what do the French need with more artillery? When factoring in the French cost of production, it seems highly probable that the frontline nations who actually need the artillery will most likely deem the French units to be too expensive and in risk of delay, and instead more likely choose to purchase off-the-shelf artillery from South Korea or brand new artillery from countries with cheaper labour costs like Poland or Romania. Regardless of all of that though, it's safe to say that no matter what happens in Ukraine, Russia will still be a threat for Europe. If we look at the first scenario, and Russia does achieve an outright victory in Ukraine, then Europe will begin a countdown for when Moscow rolls the dice again, either in Moldova or Georgia. On the other hand, if Ukraine achieves a victory, there's a risk Russia may be terminally wounded, and there's a high risk of the Russian sphere collapsing. As with Russia imploding, there'll be no one to keep them in check, meaning that whilst Ukraine has victory parades through Kiev, war is more than likely breaking out everywhere from Azerbaijan to Kyrgyzstan to possibly even within Russia itself, all of which have grave security concerns for Europe. Even a best-case stalemate scenario would more than likely just see Russia going back, licking its wounds, restructuring its army, and trying to take Ukraine again in a few years' time. And when they come back, will NATO be able to pull out those same stops and supply Ukraine with that much equipment that quickly, like they did for the 2022 invasion? The equipment that NATO is buying today is what they'll be fighting with in five years' time. And no one knows whether the next big battles for Europe or even international security will be taking place in the jungles of Mali or the foothills of the Balkans, the familiar plains of Ukraine, or even the beaches of Taiwan. This is the question defense planners in the West have to place a bet on today, desperately hoping to defy a century of European generals betting on the wrong war. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. It was a really interesting one to put together. I know when we were writing this episode, there was one question that kept crossing my mind. That yes, we started to understand Europe's rearmament, but how is Asia rearming? And are the Western-friendly nations of the Pacific ready for a surprise invasion of Taiwan or a North Korean march south in the same way that NATO was ready for Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And it's a question that kept rattling through the back of my head throughout the taping of this episode. And I'd imagine that for a few of you, it was probably rattling around your head as well. So instead of leaving you hanging and not answering that question, we decided to turn this episode into a two-parter, with the next fortnight's episode focusing on the Pacific rearmament, what arms and materials are starting to buy up in large numbers, and what we can deduce from those purchases. So stick around, as that one's sure to be even more eye-opening than this one. If you want to be kept up to date when that episode eventually drops, and with all of the other upcoming content we have coming up, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok, 
on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MyKillyAdOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons. And speaking of those amazing Patreons, I want to thank Sophie Eller, who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Sophie. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars a month, we'd greatly appreciate it. But until then, this episode focusing on European rearmament is all thanks to you, Sophie. But to Sophie and the rest of our Patreons, I look forward to seeing you at this weekend's online policy debate and roundtable. A lot of info, a lot of maps, and a lot of policy discussions, and I'm very excited to do this one again. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Putin's Wars by Mark Galliotti for a fantastic look on the structures of the Russian army and Russian defense industry. The second is White Flag by Michael Ashcroft for an examination of the UK's defense capability and a look at just how much UK domestic politics ends up shaping the nation's defense policies. And the third is Flashpoints by George Friedman for a look at some of the geopolitical flashpoints the defense planners have to begin to account for already. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Neil Melvin, Alex Clarkson, Perun, and James Black. This was an absolutely cream of the crop panel, and we were thrilled to have them on the program today. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniel Isabella, Genevieve Donald May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cotter-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanu, a media director, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. The team has been putting out some amazing analysis and articles on our website, and I highly encourage you to go check that out for incredibly well-researched and poignant geopolitical analysis that just isn't quite big enough to do a full Redline episode on. The Redline will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.